My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Joey Hartman. Longtime supporters of the Talking Radical Project will remember that long before its current incarnation as a radio show with a focus on contemporary struggles, it was a historical project that used oral history interviews with longtime activists as a basis for publishing two books of Canadian history from below. Thus, though the focus of the show is only occasionally historical, I still approach this work with a keen appreciation for the ways in which the history that most of us have a chance to learn mostly erases the role of struggle in shaping our world, and tells us tales that are supportive of an oppressive status quo and of elites. To quote Gary Kinsman, who has done important work of this sort around queer struggles and struggles related to national security in the Canadian context, we face, quote, the social organization of forgetting, and we must respond with, quote, the resistance of remembering. Not only that, it is important that we engage actively with history in our communities and movements, and that we learn and tell the stories of the struggles that have brought us to where we are today, that we might better navigate the struggles that are currently shaping tomorrow. Joey Hartman is the president of the Vancouver District Labor Council, the first woman to hold that position in its 122-year history. In the early 1980s, she was a daycare worker and a union member who was swept into labor activism by a lengthy strike. After a chance encounter with labor history at a conference, she avidly began to learn more, and soon enough was regularly doing talks and presentations about labor history both within and beyond the movement. Importantly, her feminist commitments have led her to learn as much as she can about the rich but not always easy history of women in the labor movement, and to a commitment to doing what she can to share that history with younger generations of workers. Her latest talk on this topic was in late April at the Vancouver Historical Society. She talks with me about the history of women in the labor movement in Vancouver and beyond, and about her work doing history as an activist, as someone very much embedded in a movement context. We spoke by Skype to phone from Vancouver. My name is Joey Hartman, and I work as the president of the Vancouver and District Labor Council, but I also do labor history work on the side as an amateur, but a keen interest in labor history. I grew up in Vancouver, and I wasn't actually involved with the labor movement or social justice work at all until I was working as a special needs daycare worker in the downtown east side. And coincidentally, the daycare was situated in a building that was a parks board facility, and so we ended up being covered by the same collective agreement as city workers. And in 1980, I was an alternate to the bargaining committee that included all of the municipal workers in the Vancouver area. And we ended up on a 14-week strike in 1981 that I participated in and transformed me from being somebody who was kind of an observer of what was going on in the labor movement to being an activist in it. 
And I also found that the other values and principles as a feminist and already paying more attention to social justice issues, that the labor movement is a really good vehicle for that activism. And so I soon became a shop steward right after the strike, got involved on the executive of my union, and then have been in staff positions and elected positions since about 1985. How did your own active involvement in the labor movement connect with active engagement with labor history? It started by simply going to a conference on labor history that somebody had recommended and thought I would find interesting. And I very quickly realized that knowing the rich history of the labor movement gave me what I call a long view. So the struggles that we go through for collective bargaining and to certify unions and to really have our place in the world is something that has been going on for, you know, a couple of hundred years in Canada. And so I realized that we have had real difficult times and sometimes where we've been able to make gains and that there are lessons to be had for that that are applicable to the work that I continue to do. I don't do primary research, but I do a lot of reading and looking at the work that other people have done. And I pick from what I consider to be the most interesting stories, the ones that are most illustrative of the kinds of events that have shaped our labor movement, the things that have been sometimes the warts within the labor movement. So, you know, we've taken some very bad positions with regard to treating immigrants and the question of temporary foreign workers continues to be in that same vein. So there are parallels to be drawn. And I always look to what's happening in the contemporary situation and say, where's a labor history piece that we can connect the dots to and see how did we respond to it then and how are we responding to it now? And maybe there are some things that we could do differently. I was the first woman elected as the president of the Labor Council in Vancouver after, at that point, 122 years. And so combining that with my feminist approach to the work that I do, I was feeling a responsibility, actually, to create, out of the knowledge that I had, something for young women coming behind me to also hopefully inspire them to become more active and to also pay more attention to their own history maybe go chronologically through some of the key points that you make when you talk about the history of women in the labor movement. Where do you start? Well, I start by acknowledging the First Nations and the women who were working here before European women ever were and talk about a very important strike that happened in 1900 where women, mostly Aboriginal women in the canneries for fishing, helped to support a very important strike for fishers to get a better price for their salmon catches and then talk more about Aboriginal women having suffered systemic abuses over the decades. And then I move into more what happened around the waged workforce for women who had come from other parts of the world, mostly European-based. And was there much opportunity for Indigenous women on the West Coast to be involved in the labor movement in those years? The most opportunity would have been through the Fishermen's Union, and the Aboriginal women were involved as shore workers, and they were unionized by the Fishermen's Union. So despite the fact that they didn't have the right to vote and that their status was often at risk, particularly under the Indian Act that stripped them of their status if they married a non-Aboriginal man, that the Fishermen's Union actually provided them with a really positive place to engage in collective action and that they had some power there and that helped to infuse other parts of their life where they didn't have those same powers. And paint me a picture of the limits and the possibilities for participation in the labor movement by women of other backgrounds in those years. 
Well, it was pretty low. To begin with, by 1911, women in the paid workforce in Vancouver reflected only 8% of the total paid workforce. Those women were, by and large, working as domestic servants. They were very young, typically between 10 and 25 years of age, and it was really tough work. In many cases, very isolated. As servants in the homes of wealthy people, they would be often the only paid worker there. They would be working under the roof of their boss and subject to a lot of exploitation and abuse, including sexual abuse. Women in those circumstances were looking for other opportunities and they were also looking to improve their situation. So there was actually a union that formed in Vancouver in about 1913. It was the Domestic Workers Union. They were trying both to get an improved wage structure, but also they wanted to get their workday reduced from about a 14-hour day to nine. And they were making some success, but there was a depression at that point and their union fell apart after about two years. It's also worth talking about some of the other kinds of jobs that women would be doing. Typical work would include being a seamstress or a washing woman or a childcare worker. There were some early daycares that were quite affordable and accessible to provide custodial care for women so that they could then go and work into those domestic jobs. The fishing women we talked about, teachers, telephone workers, those were the kinds of jobs that mostly women would find themselves in. And were any of the other sectors where there were concentrations of women doing waged work organized in those years? Generally not, no. The telephone workers had a very successful strike against BC Telephone Company in 1902. They had been organized by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, but in a women-only local. Those early unionization attempts typically put women into the separate local of a men's union. Actually, the very first telephone operators in many cases in the West Coast here were young boys, the same boys who had delivered telegrams on their bikes and typically were aged about 11, 12 years old. And they would do the switchboard, the telephone exchange in the back of a general store, probably with a cot that one had a 12-hour shift and then the other one took their turn. But they got bored and they played jokes on the customers. And so the next thing the, the telephone company decided was to hire young women to do that same work. And they got paid nothing for their first six months. It was a six-month unpaid training period. And then once they started earning wages, it was $10 a month. Despite that, these were considered to be pretty desirable jobs because the alternative was working in a fish plant or as a domestic servant or one of those other jobs. These were among the very first unionized women workforces. And they had a really good rapport with their customers because, of course, they would talk to them all the time. Every time they had a phone ring that they had to connect to another call, they would have a conversation with that customer. And so when they went on strike in 1902 for improved wages and also they had a demand for paid sick days, that strike was very, very successful. They went on strike four years later after the first collective agreement expired, though, and this time the company was ready for it and had organized women from high society to scab the work and come in and break the union. And so the Telephone Workers Union was busted in 1906 and didn't actually reorganize until 1918. I would say, though, that the early 1900s was a period when women were really starting to agitate for change and to really struggle against the oppression and inequality that they were experiencing. That's really what led to the first International Women's Day, which was a result of a motion at a conference in Copenhagen in 1910 called the International Conference on Working Women. And a woman from Germany named Clara Zotkin, she put forward a resolution that there should be a day every year to recognize the work and to celebrate women's contributions. And so in 1911 was the first International Women's Day as a result of that.
It was mostly in Europe and the United States, but there were certainly Canadian women who were involved with that. And the suffrage movement as well was very important in Canada as women tried to get the right to vote. And also later there was the well-known persons case. If people go to Ottawa, behind the National Library, there's the five statues of the women who took the lead in the persons case in Canada. And what they were fighting for was the right to have women be able to run for office or to be appointed to the Senate. The famous five, as they became known, had taken a case to the Supreme Court of Canada in 1918, and they were turned down. The quote from the Supreme Court of Canada said that women are persons in matters of pains and penalties, but are not persons in matters of rights and privileges, and couldn't be any clearer than that. And it was appealed to the Privy Council in England where they overturned that law in 1929. And that's what established the fact that women became persons under the law. And what involvement was there by women in some of the classical political activities that we think of as being part of the Depression in the 1930s? The women in the communities, while they were mostly suffering from unemployment themselves, would do whatever they could to support the efforts by the unemployed for work and wages. So the famous Ottawa Trek is one example. In 1935, when the government of Canada had responded to the fact that young men were tramping around the country looking for itinerant work and were becoming radicalized through that process because they knew that the depression was not their fault. It was the result of unfettered financial speculation and as always will happen in a capitalist program that bubble bursts. And when it burst in 1929 with the stock market crash, you had eventually, by the center of the depression, about a 50% unemployment rate in Canada. And so young men were cut off any form of relief. There wasn't a welfare scheme at the time, but there was a bit of relief available through some municipalities. But you were cut off at age 16. So 16-year-old boys really ended up being forced to leave home and go across the country looking for bits of work. And women, by and large, through the communities, were very supportive and would do things like have tin canning days where they'd go and, and collect their change from people. Even though everybody was going through depression themselves and suffering from poverty, people were very proud to give a nickel or a dime or whatever they could to that cause. And so it was really in terms of both supporting the unemployed, but also doing a lot of activism around it too. So there's lots of great photographs of women marching with wonderful signs and demanding that the government step in, not just to provide welfare, but also to provide jobs, to stimulate the economy, to invest in these people and give them a future. It really wasn't until after the Depression and the commencement of World War II that women in very large numbers now were able to move into manufacturing, munitions factories, making airplanes, doing shipbuilding, you know, your typical Rosie the Riveter kind of idea. And women loved this work and they also found that it was quite easy to adapt to. As one of them said, you know, if you can read a dress pattern, you can do a blueprint. They were really quite militant, too. It was the first time that they'd had an opportunity to work in a situation where there was so much camaraderie. And also, because of having just come out of the Depression, it was also the first time in a long time that workers in general were able to demand increased wages. 
because the depression had forced wages down so badly that suddenly with the war effort there was in fact a shortage of workers and they were able to leverage improvements that way. So there was actually a lot of strikes during the war and women took advantage of that as well. And coincidentally it was also the only other time that childcare has been both accessible and affordable to women generally across the country. Women were welcomed into that workforce and welcomed into the unions and also took leadership roles within the union. So you saw women becoming shop stewards, organizers, and activists in their own right. They were seen as part of the war effort. It wasn't easy, though, when the war ended for those women because 80,000 were what we would call pink slipped. They were laid off from those jobs in order to make room for returning soldiers. Of course, some of the jobs that were specific to the war industry disappeared, but those that were still available were expected to be cleared for men returning from war. And so there was a whole campaign of women trying to be enticed back into the kitchen with this idea that they would have sparkling new appliances. And really, many of those women went back to the kitchen quite unwillingly, and some would, of course, try and stay there was actually quite a lot of women in restaurant work organized during that time, too, and they had some very successful strikes. And you also saw women starting to become more dominant in office work as well and in government work. We also saw the rise of women's auxiliaries in the 1940s and early 50s. These were, to some degree, kind of social clubs for women attached to the union that their husbands belonged to. But some of them were all women union locals, like the telephone workers. And even those who were kind of seen as the social clubs, they were also deeply involved with doing things like picket line support if there was a strike and doing fundraising and political organizing. And, and some of them were very effective political lobbyists as well. And with the major expansion of participation by women in the paid labor market that began in the 1960s, how did that change the labor movement? It did two things. One is that it stimulated the labor movement in terms of looking at issues that they had not previously. And so there was certainly a lot of attention that union women would bring to their unions to try and address things like maternity leave and being able to use sick leave for their own children, having some flexibility around work schedules. Some unions took these issues up. So, for example, the Canadian Union of Postal Workers was the first union to bargain a paid maternity leave, but it actually took them 42 days on the picket line, and I think it was 1981 by the time they actually got it. These were not easy issues to gain, and it was also, for many women, very difficult to get the attention of their mainstream male labor leaders to take these issues seriously and to see that there was, with the introduction of a large group of women in the paid workforce, also a need to change how the labor movement operated, and that created a lot of frustrations. And tell me about that struggle, feminist struggle within the labor movement. In Vancouver, it manifested by the creation of two feminist-based unions in the 1970s. One of them was called AUSI, and that stood for the Association of University and College Employees. They had a strike at UBC in 1975. They're since merged with CUPE, so those workers are still there, but they're CUPE. And the other one was called SORWAC, and that stood for the Service Office and Retail Workers Union of Canada. They organized bank workers and other clerical workers. They ended up organizing a group of restaurant workers at an Aboriginal food restaurant called the Muckamuck Restaurant in Vancouver and ended up on strike for three years there and in the end declared bankruptcy and went out of existence. 
those two unions really tried to operate differently. They tried to make women's issues a priority. They organized women primarily. And they also infused feminist principles in terms of how they operated. So they were much more collaborative. They tried to not have top-down decision-making. They really did things in a pretty collective way. But they also had no training and they didn't have any resources. So they worked really, really hard, but they weren't able to sustain themselves in the long term. On the other hand, they got the attention of those mainstream labor leaders, and they also got the attention of women who were working in those mainstream unions who then really pushed for those same kind of changes. And so it did normalize those kinds of expectations that we should have things like paid maternity and to really improve on things like the health and welfare plans. In feminism of the 1970s, Women were very active throughout our society in Canada, looking for equality in every respect. So things like we had equal pay for equal work in 1958 in British Columbia, so to be paid the same wage for an identical job. But then in the 70s, that really moved into demands for pay equity, and that meant taking two jobs that were not identical jobs that had comparable worth and saying they should be paid the same as well. So those kinds of demands became very, very common. And in fact, the strike that I ended up becoming an activist in 1981 didn't start out as a pay equity strike, but evolved into one. And we made some gains on it, and we certainly understood that we deserved to have the same treatment and pay as men that we worked alongside with. Many of the women who were feminists that I knew in the 70s and 80s, some were involved in the labor movement and, and others were not. So things like making demands for control over our own bodies and reproductive rights, we took into the unions where women were in unions already. And we also encouraged women to become union members if that was possible for them because women even then and continue to really benefit from unionization in a number of ways. First of all, it gives you a collective ability to negotiate so you're not just one person, what we call collective begging when you're alone. It meant that women had the protection of a union, but there's collective bargaining and uh, grievances are possible and also protection under human rights. And it just makes it so that you have that collective ability versus doing things on your own. And so as a result of that, moving to where we are today, the average Canadian women's wage is still only 70% of men's on average, but in unionized environments, it's only a five-cent gap, not the 30-cent gap. So unions are really good for women in so many respects, and it also gives women a place to exercise their changes that they're seeking in the broader society because unions, of course, take positions on those things and lobby for changes as well. So when we have that progressive voice, it also particularly benefits women. And what are some of the struggles that remain to be won, specifically in terms of the experiences of women workers? Women, as I just said, on average are still making 70% of every man's dollar. Women tend to be most likely to suffer poverty or to be a single parent, and that's where they're most vulnerable. And having the responsibility still, the majority responsibility for either aging parents or children, and that has implications in terms of workplace as well, because it means that women, if they don't have some flexibility around that, are having to carry really huge burdens. We are also seeing that domestic violence issues have workplace impact, and so many unions have taken that up as an issue. We also look at things like the Living Caregiver Program. 
And of course, healthcare. We're looking at the change in transfer payments between the federal government and the provinces, and that means that the work that is not going to be paid for by the government anymore is going to fall to women in terms of caring and providing those kinds of supports to people and their families. And looking back on all of these decades of history, what are some lessons that you would derive for women workers today? Collective struggle and collective action is the most key. So when women are coming together and really strategically thinking about how to create change and to bring forward the issues that are unique to women, it's always an uphill battle. But that women have been able to make significant change when the conditions are also right, right? So that's part of being strategic. Periods of time when there actually is lower levels of unemployment and that jobs are available, women have been able to move forward during those periods. And I think part of it too is refusing to be pushed backwards. There's always an element of things moving backwards and forwards that women know that we have our rightful place in the workforce and that we are just as smart and articulate and savvy as our counterparts. And to exercise that and to have a presence and to support each other as well. Tell me why you think it's important that we talk about history in our movements. Labor history, and I would say all history, is important to know because it does repeat itself. And there's always things that we can look to and say, "Oh, had I been there, I might have done it differently." And how can I also use this to inform what I'm doing now? And as movements progress and sometimes regress, it's always in context. So it's what was happening politically, what was happening with the society, what was happening in terms of the economy. Were people moving towards a conservative era or a more progressive era? How did the labor movement fit into that? Did we help to try and redefine it? Did we agree with it? I think it helps to inform our thinking as active trade unionists now to say we have an opportunity, but also a responsibility to look at these bigger pictures. And when you have opportunities to talk about these things with youth, with workers, what kind of responses do you get? Many say, "Oh, we had no idea," and and they find it really interesting. I find a lot of people say, "This is what we need is more education," and I always say, "No, this is part of what we need." I think that having these kinds of presentations are critical, but I would never say we need just more education because people don't come to activism because they were taught about it. They come to it because they experienced it. And so I actually think that it's usually having an opportunity for participation in a an event, a rally, or a demonstration, or a workplace visit, or those kinds of things where people go, oh, now I'm interested in finding out where this all came from. Like, what is the backstory? And then it becomes incremental from there. You have been listening to my interview with Joey Hartman, the president of the Vancouver District Labor Council. Today we were talking about the history of women in the labor movement and about her work doing labor history as an activist embedded in the movement. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked Radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thanks.